Well, everybody, this is uh, your host for the Bird and Command podcast, Earl Breon. Uh, I don't have a lot for you before this one because we got a lot of information uh, that my guest and I are going to cover in this episode. Uh, the one announcement I do have is I'm very pleased to announce that you can now find the Bird and Command podcast on Amazon Prime Music with their new uh, podcast feature. So just like any other podcast aggregator, go over to Amazon Prime Music Uh, Click on their little podcast tab that they have there and just search for The Burden of Command uh, podcast, and you can subscribe to that just like any other. Uh, Honored to be on there. Uh, Seems to be doing really good for for numbers already. And on that note, just want to say thank you to everybody who's went out there and taken the time to write a review, rate the show, and share it with your friends. You know how the algorithms work. And I appreciate you doing your part to help us get uh, these great guests uh, more visibility. With that, I'm going to uh, go ahead and be quiet and let you get into this week's episode. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burn and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest is Mr. Dan Bruder. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Earl. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for being on. And, and listeners, so uh, Dan is CEO of Fusion Dynamics Group, an international strategy and leadership consulting firm based in Colorado. He has an accomplished background in executive leadership, strategic planning, entrepreneurship, sales and marketing operations, brand development, customer service, and corporate finance. Dan draws on his 30-plus years of personal leadership, Created and created the Blendification System, which we'll talk about in this uh, podcast. And that's a series of workshops and keynotes blending culture, strategy, and execution to help companies, individuals, and communities realize their potential. He is also a faculty member of Colorado State University's Executive MBA program and the University of Colorado Boulder's Graduate Lead School of Business. Now, uh, on top of that, he is the author of a book uh, titled The Blendification System, Activating Potential by Connecting Culture, Strategy, and Execution. Sounds like uh, you got a lot on your plate there, sir. <laughs> yeah, a couple things. You know, we just, uh, we just try to keep busy doing, doing what we do and trying to make a little bit of an impact on this world, you know. And that's a, that's a noble goal to have. So... Uh, well, before we really dive deep into the blendification system and, and the book and what that is all about, uh, let me start you out where I start out all my guests. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? Well, it's interesting. I'm um, just looking at the title of the podcast, Burden. Um, you know, that's kind of like a, a heavy load, something that's weighing on our shoulders Command is, you know, authoritative um, leadership, basically, some level of leadership. When you put the two together, when I look at that, it it really means to me that as leaders, we have a heavy responsibility. Um, And when we look at the burden and command together, we we as leaders need to do something that impacts others' lives. So a lot of people um, really don't embrace the burden or the responsibility of being a leader, although people 
try to move to leadership roles, they're typically they struggle with the actual burden of it. When you start looking at how my actions as a leader start impacting the lives of others, not only at work, but at home and in their communities. So when we talk about the burden of command, it really kind of is right up the alley of what, what I think we're talking about here today. And that is how do we embrace the responsibility of being a leader so that we better impact our society. And in a business context, we really look at that as um, how do we use our business and our leadership within our business to impact the lives of our employees, our customers, and our communities. Um, and we can take that back. Gosh, God, we can go back to the beginning of you know, our country and why our country was founded. And you know, it really is about um, creating a uh, a system that enhances society, a system, a free system for the most part, you know, not completely free, but um, a system that really has free uh, fundamentals that we can make decisions and lead others and make, um, make an impact on their lives. And we chose to use somewhat of a capitalistic type system within this country, you know, our founding fathers. And, um, that system was really used not to make people billions and billions of dollars, but it was really what they thought would be the best way to create positive societal advancement, change, and impact. And if you look back over the last 200 years, you can't argue that um, that, that system has made a dramatic impact on the world from you know, reducing extreme poverty, um, reducing the infant, infant mortality rate across the world. I mean, it's just been crazy what has happened to the growth in society over the last 200 years when we really look at a cooperative model um, where people get together and they work together to benefit society. And I think that's what we are. So when we look at it from a burden of command perspective, I really believe that leaders have a responsibility, a real strong responsibility to make an impact on their employees, customers, and their communities. And um, until we embrace that, we're really just chasing one simple metric like profit or or you know, return on shareholder wealth, which I think are important metrics. But the truth is, is that our, our ability to make a difference in this world as being a leader is much greater than a simple little metric. Does that make sense, Earl? Oh, that makes absolute sense. And, and I was, uh, I, I was that was an answer I was actually kind of uh, expecting and hoping because uh, I, I love it. And, and it, it shows because like uh, your book, uh, again, for the listeners, The Blendification System, um, Dan opens up uh, in the first chapter talking about strategy progression and, and you know, being who I am, somebody who loves history, somebody who uh, served in the military. I see the words military strategy, Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, and then somebody who uh, uh, everybody in the military knows, Carl von Clausewitz. So, I was expecting to hear some of that progression and some of the history piece. And I love what you said about how this country was founded. And, and, and thank you for pointing that out because it's something uh, with everything going on that I've had a lot of conversations with people about as well. Is this, this country was never founded to be perfect out of the gate. It was founded to become better. And, and, and the systems that we have in place, we have mechanisms that are slowly 
making us better. We made leaps in some areas, but in other areas we're seriously lagging, but we're still making improvements. So uh, I, I like that you tied that in there. So thank you for that. Um, but but talk about that that strategy progression. Why did you choose to start off with a blendification system, kind of going through uh, this strategy progression history, if you will? Well, if I looked at look at strategy, and when I started teaching strategy uh, at Colorado State University, probably about six or seven years ago, um, it was on the heels of me running a strategic planning. Um, consulting practice. And I also ran strategy for a division of Marriott as well. Um, and so I've always been somewhat fascinated with strategy. But when I started teaching strategy, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? You know, all this stuff that I learned in the field, how does this relate to the academic world? Can I teach a bunch of students this stuff? I said, well, the good news is, is there's a lot of history on teaching strategy. So why don't I just leverage what's already been done? So I solicited a bunch of um, syllabi from various different professors, and they were really, really similar, oddly similar to the same syllabi, syllabus that I used back in the 80s when I was in my undergraduate and then later on in the 90s in graduate school. And I realized that, gosh, strategy from a teaching perspective hasn't really changed in 30 years. So I started thinking about this and, um, you know, I went through the first semester kind of following what everyone else had done. And then I said, you know, I can't continue to do this because this isn't really how it works in real life and business can do so much more. And what, I would, what I'm referring to is, is that most of the strategic planning documents and research and stuff that I was reading, the books, the textbooks, were really about coming in there and annihilating your competition. Mm you know, just wiping out the competition, competitive advantage. And there's books written on how we just kill our competition. And I thought, gosh, you know, it feels like I'm at war, but business, you know, let's keep this real. Now, war is war. Let's not say that business is war because it's not. Mm -hmm. There is no end game. We're, we're really trying to enhance lives. Um, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of really good things through our business. But at the end of the day, this is... This is what we do. It's not about trying to annihilate anybody and you know crush people and win because there's no there's no podium at the end of the game with business. You know, you look back on your life and you say, how did I impact the lives of others through my actions? There's no you know first, second, or third place. You know, A ask um, you know ask Microsoft about that. You know, and they were they were on top of the world prior to Microsoft. So I started doing research, Earl, and and um, I really came to the realization that there wasn't a really strong platform that leveraged the potential of human beings as leaders within a business context. And that's when I started building this out. Um, and I started building this system out really within the context of school and then in my practice. And how can I create a strategic planning model that unites people, that brings people together? where your sales and your marketing department is really looking for guidance from your product development teams, where your leaders within a company are not just looking inside for answers, they're looking outside for answers. They're looking at their competition, not to crush them, but to be inspired from them. And so I really felt fell onto this platform that we really need to build better internal organizations that look at the businesses, how as a way we can create positive change inside and outside our companies. 
the progression of history. So going back through that, and it's clear military history is just, it, it is all strategy. I mean, you mentioned some good ones, Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, uh, von Clausewitz, who came out and said, basically, hey, we need, we need a plan, but we also need to have a plan that's adaptable. And um, so you go through all these, this different history, and it was all around military. And then in the 60s, we said, you know, the business came together and said, let's, let's take this military strategy and apply it to business. And um, unfortunately, I think it leaves us a little short of our true potential as leaders within an organizational context, because it's really not about annihilating people. It's about bringing people together. So historically, um, we always go to military for strategy and we can learn tremendous things from that. But at the same time, business is not war and let's not treat it as such. Um, you know, I look at, uh, you know, I played football for several years as well and there's a lot of strategy there and a lot of military use of words and terms. But business has a clear scoreboard and a clock. There, you know, there's a winner and loser at the end of the day. So I, I, I mean, um, sports do, you know, football. But business doesn't have that. So um, really what we need to do is look at how do we leverage our business um, to do more than just annihilating the competition. So that's really the essence of the blendification system. You know, and just the word blendification, if you think of it, it's really about how do we come together? How do we blend things? How do we work together within our departments? How do we work together with our competition? How do we work together with our communities? Um, how does work life not balance, but how does work life blend together? And of course, we know that that's a pretty big deal right now with COVID nineteen. You right. know, um, it really just hit us kind of uh, right, right, right on top of the head. You know, so um, historically speaking, uh, historically speaking, we 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 leverage a military strategy, but I think we can do better as a business um, and use what's good in the military strategy, but also take that a step further and say, how do we actually cooperate? How do we work together as a group? And that's kind of the essence of what we did. Yeah, no, I like it. And, and you, um, you kind of brushed up on it a, a couple of times when you were talking there and, and in the book, but I don't, I don't remember you actually using these terms. So uh, I'll just ask, are, are you familiar with the concept of finite and infinite games? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, not from the military perspective, but um, uh, yeah, I obviously didn't write about that in the book. But yeah, it's just a bit, and as we, we I think that's where we really where we are um, from a business perspective. I don't think we've really even scratched the surface of our potential as a leader um, right. through our business, and um, you know that to me is there's it's infinite when we really think about how much we will accomplish in our lives. Sometimes I think about this. Somebody said to me once, they said, Dan, um, think about how much information and knowledge we've gained in the course of human history. And it's, it's mind boggling to think that. Yeah. And then compare that to the amount of knowledge that there is to be gained. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just a small fraction. What we know now is just a small fraction of what we actually will know and what, how we will work together in the future. So it's, it's hard to put a cap on that. It's, again, it's, it's infinite. Yeah, well, and so, I mean, what I liked about what you said, and, and you know, for the listeners, some of you have maybe heard me bring it up in past uh, podcasts, but, you know, the, the very gist of it is, and, and, and Dan made this point brilliant, you know, a finite game is something such as sports. You have uh, a set time, you have set rules, 
and the goal is at the end to have a winner. Uh, an infinite game, there are really no set rules, there's no set clock, there's no end. The purpose of an infinite game is to keep the game going. And where a lot of organizations fall flat is, again, what Dan said, they start looking at each other. Am I number one? Am I number one in this metric? Am I number one in this metric? And they win and they get complacent. Whereas if you do what Dan's talking about here and you play this as an infinite game and your goal is continual improvement, uh, continually becoming better, continually serving our employees, continually serving our customers, you never win. You just always get better. And there's really no cap on that other than, you know, if the world ever stops turning, I guess. So I, I, I say all that to just say I love what you've done here because it really rings true with a lot of, of what I've seen myself and, and what I believe. So, uh, you know, thank you for putting this uh, together the way you did. Uh, and for the listeners, it, it makes sense hearing Dan talk and knowing his, his uh, education background because one of the things I do like about the book is it is very textbook. Uh, I like the fact that you have a lot of good charts and uh, and visual aids through the book. It helps uh, the information you lay out here be digested quite a bit easier. So I like the way you've laid this book out. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was interesting. Of course, my publisher might not have liked that as much because um, <laughs> it was tough. But I had a goal when I put this out there that we were going to create um, – what I believe to be a book that checked a lot of boxes um, from a philosophical perspective, like you said, is how do we how do we grow each other? How do we grow business kind of from an infinite perspective? How do we pursue our potential? So there's a there's a theoretical philosophical component to this. But then we dig it deeper down and say, what is a process for doing this? How do we build this step by step process? Because I've read enough books, and I assume you have as well, Earl, where you read a book and you go, gosh, that was a really nice concept. And then within three days, it's gone. There's no real follow-up, follow-through, or action. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to write a book like that. I wanted to write a book where people were stimulated based on the things they can, they can um, accomplish in their lives, but then back it up with a step-by-step action. And um, really, here's what I do. Here's what I do today. Here's how I run a meeting in order to help pursue my potential. Potential. And, um, you know, the book really goes from, you know, the little bit of history, like you mentioned, into some leadership tools. And then it really just jumps into how do we actually do this step by step, one, two, three. And, um, you know, I I happen to be a bit of a uh, crazy format person. So I had high expectations in terms of how it actually looks, feels and reads. So um, it is a little bit different than most books that you see out there. But um, to me, I wanted to make sure that um, it was everything I had. And so I put everything I could into it from that perspective. Well, and, and I think you uh, succeeded uh, completely. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's about a little over 300 pages, but, uh, and I mean this in a good way for listeners, it's about 300 pages, but I feel like it was about 3000 pages worth of content by the time I was, uh, I was through it. Um, meaning I took a lot out of it. There was a lot that you got in here, and like I said, with the, the models you have. Uh, with that being said, you know, you kind of talked about it there, you know, chapter two, you do really t- kind of uh, dive into those uh, uh, system leadership uh, models, and you 
you make a distinction between IQ and EQ. Why did you feel it was important to delineate those two uh, measurements? Well, I think, you know, we're, we're, most of us are familiar with, um, with our IQ, cognitive intelligence. And, um, you know, that's, we've been told this since we were little, you know, I was never the tops in my class growing up, but um, I tend to know what everybody's base level of intelligence was, cognitive intelligence, so to speak. Um, and then around the 90s, Daniel Goleman came out with this idea or popularized this idea around emotional intelligence. And um, the nice thing about that was um, for those of us that may not have been the most book smart, we could actually work really well with people potentially through, through our emotional intelligence and be successful. And what, what Daniel Goleman found out is that, hey, if we have a high level of emotional intelligence, the ability to empathize, the ability to put ourselves into other people's shoes, we can relate to people. That might be potentially even better than IQ, which is, you know, that book smart type intelligence. And um, so there was kind of this evolution in the 90s that's been popularized and we've had EQ tests and emotional intelligence are out there. But to delineate those um, in, in Daniel Goleman's world, it was really about um, if you want to have one, make sure you have emotional intelligence. And as I looked at that in a world that I don't think a, this world is quite as black and white as we want it to be. Meaning if I could choose EQ or IQ, which one would I choose? Fortunately, I don't have to choose. When I looked at that, I kind of stepped back and said, if we were to have or, or build the best leader, what type of intelligence would they possess? And what I ended up with is that, sure, we, we would definitely want somebody that is book smart, that has a high degree of cognitive intelligence. And then, of course, we would want that person to be able to relate to others, EQ, emotional intelligence. But then I thought, gosh, there's even another level here because when I communicate with somebody in an office environment, they tend to go back and have conversations or communications with the people inside the office or on Zoom in this case right now today. Right. Um, but they also go home and speak to their spouse, um, their significant other. Sometimes they're speaking to their children. So. What happens at work tends to also happen at home. So we need to have this level of system intelligence. So start out with IQ, cognitive intelligence, then EQ, emotional intelligence. But if we really want to be a good leader and impact people's lives, we need this other layer, um, which I call the system intelligence. That's the ability to see how what I do impacts multiple different layers, not just me, not just the person I'm talking to but who they're talking to, how they're living in their lives. So we have the system intelligence component. Inside a business, system intelligence looks a little bit like what is marketing and sales doing that impacts product? So if we have a new market we want to go into, do we have the right product to fit that market? And then in the back end of that, do we have the capabilities internally to build that product? So now we have three different functional areas that need to be talking to each other, or we need to be displaying some level of system intelligence, knowing that what my department does impacts other departments. And that at the base of that is our culture. How, do, how does all this impact our culture? So what I've created here in the book is this leadership pyramid that starts at the base with IQ, then moves up to EQ, but then at the top of the pyramid is systems, 
system intelligence, and that's the ability to look out around and see what our ripple effect is, not just the person I'm talking to and not just me, but how am I really impacting things? So to me, if we put all that together, it's not about choosing one, Earl. It's really about how do we maximize all of these? If we want to be the best leader that we can be, we need to possess components of all three of these types of leadership in order to maximize our potential so that we can help others reach their potential. Oh, again, I loved it. And and that's one thing I love about, again, I keep saying it, but it, it's because it's true how you've kind of blended some of the, the military strategy with the corporate world and, and how well those two things actually gel. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the civilian sector have this idea of what they think military leadership is, and it's usually just the yelling, screaming, shouting, and, and uh, the very much command and control type that gets portrayed on TV. But, you know, it's really not. I had... Uh, you know, I had a, a senior Marine when I was uh, in, on active duty. Uh, he once told me that the way he, I, uh, he defined military leadership was simply as you have to be ready, willing, and able to send your troops into combat knowing they're going to die. But you have to love them enough to where the idea of doing that rips your heart out. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the world, the military world, and what the training you guys receive in military in the military is tremendous because you have to walk that fine line. And, you know, it's uh, kind of like what Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth, right. you know. Um, and uh, I think military is like that. I, have you, I don't know if you um, go out there. Has anything ever worked according to plan? So we need to develop these nimble plans um, that can be adapted and... Um, you know, it's kind of, it's situational leadership, you know, at its best. The military is a great source of information. Um, my daughter's, uh, she's in the Air Force. Um, uh, she's at the Air Force Academy. And, um, you know, several years ago, she was, she was the one being yelled at. Now she's the one doing the yelling. But, um, you know, it's what, what, what she's learned through that military process, the confidence the ability to adapt on the fly. I wish we could teach that on a large scale basis because I've watched my daughter over the course of the last three years at the Air Force Academy just grow and blossom into this confident human being that can lead and communicate. I've watched her grow her emotional and her system intelligence. She's just very, very thoughtful. I wish I could take credit for that as a parent, but the truth is, is whatever they're doing in the military is working. I'm, I'm super proud of what they're doing. I'm glad they're defending us, to tell you the truth. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a it's immersive training, and I think that's the one thing uh, that maybe the corporate world really messes out on. Um, I remember reading a statistic; it was a Pew uh, study, it was a global study, and uh, the the gist of it was that the average age that someone gets put into a leadership role uh, is roughly early thirties. Uh, the average age they receive their first formal leadership development is roughly the early 40s. So you have a 10-year gap where people are supposedly leading other people without any idea, unless they've taken the initiative to fill that gap on their own, on how to actually fill those roles. And, and I like your concept of system uh, system intelligence because that's... Uh, uh, that that ties in again back to that military leadership style because you're expected to know 
those things and take into account when you're planning how this uh, this strategy is going to affect uh, motor pool, how this strategy is going to affect uh, getting ammunition in and out. And you're supposed to know all that stuff when you're planning. Uh, so I like that. Um, and, and you kind of get into chapter three, relying heavily uh, on, on culture and the importance of culture. Why, uh, why did that come so early in the book? Uh, why did you put such an emphasis on culture so early in your book? Well, what, I, what I've realized over the years is that um, in, in, order, in order for an organization to reach its potential, there needs to be a culture. And I'm not just saying we have a culture type thing. It needs to be defined at the habitual level, mm -hmm. meaning we need to know what behaviors and habits are forming our culture. And as an organization, <clears throat> we need to write those down and we need to evaluate whether or not these things are taking place within our organization. Um, and, and if we can't do that, we have no shot at achieving our potential as an organization or for that matter, as a leader. So to me, if we define our culture, and when we say, when I say culture, I'm not just talking about, you know, foosball tables and beer taps culture. I'm talking about what it is we want to accomplish as an organization. What is our potential? What's our cause? What's our intention for our employees, customers, and our um, community? When we define these things, what we start doing is we start motivating people. We start creating something that people want to come work for us for. We start identifying what's important to us. And this culture, how we work together, then that, then that allows us to build a strategy or a business plan, so to speak. So we start with culture, and now we have to build a plan, a step-by-step -step tactical plan, so to speak. We call it strategy that actually pursues our culture or our potential or enables our culture. Um, and then we go through an execution process. But uh, someone asked me the other day, they said, what's more important, culture or strategy? And, um, you know, going back to uh, that, that quote that says, you know, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is I think culture, strategy and execution are really just a, a good meal. Right. Um, we, if we want to do something special, we have to build an environment or a culture that real that pursues what we call earned success, something important, um, something significant. So when I looked at this, the, the first place to start is on culture because we have to define our culture and what we want to accomplish as an organization so that we can stay motivated. Because I don't know about you, Earl. There's days that you just don't want to go and do the same thing you've been doing. So what really picks us out of bed? What what gets us going? What motivates us? And that's our culture, the people, how we communicate, what we're going after, what our cause is. Those are all the things that shape our culture so that we can then build a really strong strategy and then build an execution platform or meetings that we can actually make this work. But if we don't have a strong culture, we don't have a strong cause or we don't have um, you know some people call it values if we don't have those things boy work can be pretty monotonous when we go to work can be pretty boring and it really becomes this eight to ten hours that we do every day that's just kind of this 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 block out time you know and we really live the rest of our lives to do something special i believe that through our culture in an organization we should be really 
moving fast and moving hard and doing something special in our work so that we can achieve something something great through our work so the rest of our life is good too. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and so you mentioned your daughter earlier. So uh, next time you see her, tell her I said thank you, thank her for uh, her service. Uh, and and you mentioned earned success. You know, as as a Marine, uh, that's something that is near and dear to my heart because it's kind of the foundation of of what the Marine Corps is. Uh, you know, it was actually Simon Sinek. He, uh, he talked about the Marine Corps recruiting strategy and how brilliant it was. He says, you know, basically what the Marines tell you is we're the biggest, we're the baddest, we're the hardest uh, group out there to join. You can't do it. Just in case you think you can, here's our information. And then when you take the challenge and you go through the boot camp process and you earn that title, something that you've been told that you aren't worthy of, but now you have somebody who has already earned it telling you that you are worthy of it. You know, that's a huge, uh, that's a huge point of pride. And it's, it's one of the reasons why Marines, even if they've been out of the service 70 plus years, that's still the best group that they've ever been a part of. And it comes down to this, this earned success that, that you're talking about. It, it really can galvanize an organization so how you know the marines are kind of obvious they have some tools and and things that we can't do in the civilian world to 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 get that earned success but how can your average civilian organization get anywhere near that level of of buy-in through earned success yeah, um, it's interesting, and we look at earned success, and, and that concept was introduced to me by Gary Payton, Colonel Gary Payton from the U.S. Air Force Academy. A um, little story on how this came about. My, my daughter went through basic training, which was six weeks of you know pretty hard work <laughs> when right. she was an incoming basic there. And at the end of that, they had been, you know, out in the woods, in the fields, you know, um, going through gas chambers, getting beat, you know, verbally beat, I should say. Um, working really hard and at the end of that they all had to stand out and um, at, at attention for roughly an hour and uh, they were completely deplete of calories and everything and, and uh, this was in Colorado Springs and it was a warm day they were all dropping like flies literally fainting not all of them but several were fainting but as they were going through this Gary Payton Colonel Payton was talking and he said you might not be thinking about this right now but what you have accomplished is tremendous. Very few people will ever accomplish what you've done over the last six weeks of basic training. It can never be taken away and you can look back on this over the course of your life as something that you achieved that you might not have thought you could have achieved. And going back to your analogy with the Marine Corps, you know, that's what it is. It's about doing something hard, doing something that takes that that takes a lot of effort and time and energy and we're not always sure we're going to succeed. But when we do succeed, it becomes one of those sentinel type moments in our life that we gain great happiness, joy and fulfillment from. So that's from the military side. And, and um, he introduced that to me. And I was just fascinated with this. I didn't go there to listen to somebody speak and talk about things that would end up in my book or anything like that. I went there to really just watch my daughter. But when I walked out of there, I thought, wow, that is really the essence, the foundation for motivation. And if we look at motivation at the core of what we do, you know, motive. How do we how do we get motivated to do something? Motive. We know in our court system that um, we won't uh, we won't convict somebody if they don't have a motive. 
And the same thing in business, same thing in life. If we don't have motivation, we're not going to do anything. So how do we take this idea of earned success, I thought, and translate that into an operating model for a business? Because if we can put together any models, we can write anything, we can tell people what to do. But if we can't motivate people, then we're going to have a hard time pursuing our potential as an organization. So I wanted to translate that concept, earn success into the business world. So that meant that we needed to create some level of motivation and accountability within an organization through our culture and our strategy. So if we have the right culture and we define what it is we're chasing through our culture, our potential, our cause, and then we build a strategy or a strategic platform that creates clear identifiable goals or outcomes, and we lead people on an outcome basis. Now what we're doing is we're, we've got the carrot in, in our potential and our cause and our culture, but then we back it up with clear business outcomes that are really like breadcrumbs on the, on the path to success. And then what we start seeing is people are staying motivated because they're pursuing things that are hard. And I think business, or you bring this up, but I, I think business has lost this. And maybe even to some extent, society has lost this. We're trying to make everything easy. You know, don't worry about it. You know, have a good day. Take it easy. We talk about these things. But the truth is, is what motivates human being is something, human beings is something significant. And when we're, when we're so busy as leaders trying to make everything easy, dumb everything down and say, oh, you don't have to do this. I'll do this. We don't delegate, we don't challenge, we don't guide. What we're doing is shooting ourselves in the foot, not just from an organizational perspective, but we're not embracing, you know, that embracing that responsibility to lead others. So through earned success, if we really document earned success, motivate people, we can allow people and help people achieve something greater through their work. And that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, you hit on, to me, this is the essence of building a phenomenal life-changing organization is incorporating challenging goals, challenging, sometimes even not really achievable goals, but we can figure that out. You'd be surprised if we can create an organization that pursues earned success, how much more motivated they are. So um, to me, that's a military term, but when we translate that back into the business world, it's just basic foundation for motivation. And why don't we do this more in our workspace? Why don't we as organizations challenge our people instead of making it easy for them? Because the truth is, if, if they can't be challenged and grow in our organization, they're going to go somewhere else. And if they can't be challenged in our organization and they're happy, we don't want them, right? So um, to me, it's about building a great organization that's built on motivation around earned success, achieving something significant, not just at work, but also in our communities. Does that does that kind of expand a little bit on the earned earn success? Oh, a hundred percent. I I'm with you. I mean, you know, I I, I see it way too often, and, and you kind of hit uh, hit up against it right there. Is is this mentality of of leadership today? And and I'm even hesitant to to give it the the honor of being called leadership, but we're people are afraid, as you said, to challenge their people, to push them to do more, to expect more out of them and make excuses for substandard performance or make excuses for not being willing to innovate and, and not make mistakes. And 
uh, see how valuable that is. You know, I I shared an article. I didn't write it. It was uh, a, an article I found on Forbes. I shared this article on LinkedIn, and it was talking about mistakes. And I simply uh, titled when I shared it. I said, "Leadership is not about perfection. It's about being able to make mistakes, own up to it, and improve." And man, that thing took off like a rocket because people were like, "Yes, this is what I'm talking about." And there were a few people who were like, well, you know, it's, that, that sounds really nice, but that's not the culture that my organization has. And, and my question to every one of those, and there were four or five of them, was if that's not the culture your organization has, why are you still working there? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I, it's not that I embrace failure, but when I see failure, when people are failing at full speed, I tend to embrace that effort mm-hmm. because I know they're learning. There was one one uh, company I was working with where their vice president of operations made a mistake, and um, it was a pretty pretty um, significant mistake. And uh, the the CEO came to me and said, "I think I'm going to fire him." And I said, "And so if you fire him, what are you going to do?" Well, I'm going to go find somebody that wouldn't make that mistake. And I said, really, that's interesting. So now you got to go out, find somebody, train somebody, bring them in. You don't know if they're any good. You know this guy. I said, do you think this guy's more valuable to you now because of the mistake he made, mm-hmm. more loyal to you? Will he be looking at things differently in the future if you go ahead and give him another chance to succeed? Because that mistake, that's what he'll learn more from that than all of his successes combined. And fortunately, he kept this person on and he ended up doing quite well because this guy felt like, hey, he gave me another shot, but he learned from that mistake. And, and you know, to take somebody off the street that we don't know and not allow them to make mistakes, we're constantly because everybody make mistake makes mistakes. If we're going to if we're going to just fire somebody for making a mistake, you know, um, that's just that, that we're going to be in a kind of this perpetual hiring cycle. So I think we, we need to really be looking at, you know, mistakes and failures as opportunities to train, grow, and lead our people. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That was actually maybe the, I, I didn't realize how profound it was at the time, but it was one of the first piece of advice that actually my drill instructor gave me, my senior drill instructor when I got to boot camp, he gave it to the whole platoon, but he said the only bad mistake is one you make twice. Yeah, that's so true. You know, this 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 idea of earned success has helped me in raising kids too. You know, it's not just a business thing or a military thing. Boy, mm-hmm. when my daughters experience um, hard times, it's it, you know I had to change my habits because you know as as a parent you just want to make sure everything's easy. But the th- the truth is is I've turned that into kind of a a way to say experience hard times, watch them grow. And uh, they'll, they'll grow so much. So when, whenever my daughter is experiencing anything hard, either, you know, at school or my other daughter who's out of school now and in her career and doing all kinds of different things, when, when she comes to me stressed, I just learn to smile mm. because I know she's learning and growing and she's going to get better at this because if she's always happy, she's not learning and growing. And we learn so much when we're challenged. And I think as a society, we've gotten away from that. We've We've tried to make things easy for everybody. And the truth is, most people want things that are hard and they want to succeed at something hard. And we need to give them that opportunity as a leader. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, Well, we're already over 40 minutes here and and this has been a great, great conversation. And, uh, you know, we've we barely scratched the surface on your book. So uh, I I do want to... uh, before we, we work on ramping up here, 
you do mention uh, a couple of models uh, here in chapter four and chapter five. Um, could you just do a quick overview of uh, you, you have the the steep model and uh, the the sea best model? I think those are, are the two that I'd like to touch on before we uh, wrap up. Yeah, the, the steep model, and, and that's on a, a strategy progression. How do we actually build strategies? So both of those come out of, um, you know, what we might know more about, like a SWOT analysis. Okay. So the steep model, and that's how we look externally at all the different things that are impacting our business in the future. And the steep is social, technological, um, ec ecological, or environmental, environment. Um, um, economic and then uh, political. So all these things that are that are impacting the business in the future. So if we look now and we said, what's if we did a steep model analysis on any organization looking into the future, we would look at all the different social things that are happening now, whether that be um, some of the some of the riots and protesting. How is that impacting our business? How is that impacting our consumer? How is COVID impacting our consumer? from a social perspective, from a technological perspective, what technologies out there that we can leverage to better communicate as an organization? Um, what's going on politically? I know we don't all like talking about that, but the truth is, is that um, politics do have an impact on our business. We need to look at politics, politics objectively, not really share our opinions on who should do what or who shouldn't do this. But the reality is, is who's who's in office and what are they going to do and how are we going to lead our business and our people around that? So that's the steep model. It's how do we look externally into the future about what we think is, is going to happen so that we can then create a business model that will succeed in the future. And uh, we compare that to opportunities and threats in the SWOT analysis. I call it steep model. It's, it's more specific and we focus on the future. So once we go through the steep model, we then go through an internal analysis of our organization and say, based on this future, what type of, what type of um, uh, internal capabilities do we have? And that's the, the CBEST model, and that's another model. And then the model is really just an acronym and, and a way that we, re, we remember what to look at various different things, you know, culture, um, our brand, CBEST, um, you know, our energy inside our organization, our technology um, reliance, all those different things. We want to look at the, those components and say, how are we doing on a strength and weaknesses basis in, in context of this future that we created? So, so when we go through the external environment, we look at the future and then we go and look at the internal CBEST model. And then we also have microsystems that we look at to say, what are the things that we need to be doing inside our company to thrive in the future? And those are what those models do. They just give us a way or a model just to follow a process to make it easy because so many times we just tend to forget to look at some things or we don't look at things as deeply as we should within an organization. Um, I was working with an organization several years ago that um, really was, um, was almost went under based on a political change or uh, that impacted their business. And they said, no, oh, that's not going to have much of an impact. But if they had really thoroughly analyzed that, they would have changed their entire operations to match what was going on in the future. Um, they, for, they had to do that later on, but it was about a three-year period of, of negative earnings. And I think they lost somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million over that time frame. Mm. So... Um, 
but these models are really just step-by-step -step instructions to actually analyze what's going on outside and inside your business. Outstanding. Uh, well, Dan, again, we're, uh, we just went over about 45 minutes there, and I always like to, uh, uh, to give my guests an opportunity to kind of circle back. Uh, if there's anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about or if there's something you'd like to expand on, please uh, go ahead and do so. I think you covered it all. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I just think overall, um, you know, we spend more than 50% of our waking time in work or work-related activities. And in order for us as human beings to realize or pursue our potential, we have to do that in some component with what we do in our careers and our work. So um, why don't we embrace that? Or like you said, take on this burden that says as a leader within an organization, let's take on this burden. Let's accept this burden, this responsibility as an organization to make a better society. And, um, you know, that's that's essentially what I set out to do by writing this book is just build a build a systematic process for building better companies that build better communities and uh, blending those things together. And that's really what we're trying to do. And um, you know, I think it's something we really need to do now. And if we look at what's going on in the world, it's um, it's a bit unsettling when we look at either the COVID or what's going on with riots and so forth. The truth is, is we keep looking to Washington and government for the answers, but that's not what our country was built on. Our country was built on looking at each other for answers and also looking at business. Our businesses should be coming up with the answers to solve these problems. And um, that's really what I'm trying to say is why doesn't business take its proper role and why don't leaders accept this responsibility to create a better society? And that's essentially what the book's really trying to do is just give us a step-by-step -step process to create a better organization, better human beings, and better communities. Mm. No, that that was good. And, and I, I like that idea. Um, I don't know if it's become... The, the gold standard term, but the one I've heard a lot is that that conscious capitalism, and and, and I, I agree with you. I think uh, I think that is is what we should all strive for, especially in our organizations, is uh, conscious capitalism, capitalism with a purpose. Uh, so I, I I like that. Um, again, listeners, uh, you've been with myself and Dan Bruder. Uh, the book is titled The Blendification System, Activating Potential by Connecting Culture, Strategy, and Execution. Uh, we honestly didn't even get through probably 40 to 50% of the book. I know we probably brushed up against a lot of it, but uh, this is a great book. Uh, I highly recommend picking up a copy. And, uh, you know, Dan, for the folks who are interested, maybe looking to pick up a copy of the book, uh, where can they go, and if they want to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? Uh, yeah, well, the book is on Amazon, um, and if you just search keyword blendification, it's uh, it's the only word. I'm, I'm the only one using that word, so it, it'll take you right to that on, on Amazon. You can also go to my website, which is blendificationsystem.com, and on my website, you'll find, obviously, a link to the book, but there's also a free video series that I put out there that does a summary of each chapter of the book and provides some additional resources to support the book, um, different PDF files and things. So there's, there's quite a bit of information on my website that you can get access to that will support the book and support the implementation of the system inside the company um, or the organization. Um, 
and that, that's probably the best place to start. Um, and there's, there's quite of other opportunities to, to engage with the blendification system too as well. Outstanding. And I'll have links to all of those uh, set up in the show notes when, uh, when this gets posted. So, uh, so listeners will be able to just click on there and go right to it. Um, you know, Dan, uh, thank you very much for, for spending the last 45 minutes to an hour uh, with us. Uh, it's flown by super fast. Uh, so thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Earl. I appreciate the time and uh, look forward to keeping, uh, keeping connected with you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, listeners, thank you very much for, uh, for, for sticking with us, and I uh, hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure you did. Um, make sure that you use those uh, resources that Dan has provided. Again, they'll be linked in the show notes here. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me on the show, any suggestions for future guests, uh, suggestions for ways to make the show better, I'm doing this for y'all. Uh, hit me at burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, be sure you're sharing the show, rating uh, on, on the various platforms, subscribing, uh, doing all those great things that help the show get their visibility raised and reach more people so great guests like Dan can uh, get their message broadcast wider. Uh, again, thank you for your time. Appreciate you being with us. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid.